The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Pick Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions, got the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who always remembers to hit the record button when it comes to this show, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we will continue to cover the fall 2014 TV season with our discussion on an episode of Castle, Sleepy Hollow, Person of Interest, Supernatural, Legend of Korra, and Star Wars Rebels, along with our sitcom section, including New Girl and Big Bang Theory and Modern Family. And as always, we will also bring you all the TV and entertainment news of the week in the News with Nico section. Yeah, and we're going to get into that News with Nico section with some Doctor Who news about the return of the particular Doctor for next year. <laughs> Doctor Who, Peter Capaldi will definitely return for Season 9. It's official, if not surprising. When Doctor Who's titled Time Lord returns for Season 9, he'll still be wearing Peter Capaldi's face. Showrunner Stephen Moffat confirmed Capaldi's return. However, he was less forthcoming about Jenna Coleman's future in the TARDIS. Coleman has portrayed the Doctor's current companion, Clara Oswald, for the last two years after joining the series during the Matt Smith era. Rumors of her departure first began swirling in August, just prior to the start of Season 8. The actress is currently slated to appear in Doctor Who's upcoming Christmas special alongside Capaldi and special guest star Nick Frost, but her tenure on the series certainly appears to be winding down, especially if the events of the season 8 finale are any indication. I'm confused because I was pretty certain that this was a done deal. Maybe Moffat is just playing around to keep people interested in whether or not Clara is coming back after the Christmas special, or to keep from having to announce who the next companion is until they have the episode in the can. Either way, make sure to catch the Christmas special on, you guessed it, Christmas Day on BBC America. The Flash boss talks Grodd's arrival in another Arrow crossover. The Flash has shown restraint when it comes to what the costume Crusader can do, but that won't be the case for much longer, executive producer Sir Greg Berlanti revealed to TVLine.com following his film independent panel at LACMA last Wednesday. In fact, Berlanti added, one of the Flash's iconic powers will soon come into play in a big way. In the article in the ACC feed, the executive producer also discusses the introduction of Grodd, the big confession Barry may make to Iris, and upcoming tweaks to the titled hero's costume. And on the heels of next month's Arrow-Flash crossover, the Uber producer weighs in on the possibility of another similarly huge event in the future. So as not to spoil anything for those of you who do not want to know, follow the link in the ACC feed for the interview with Greg Berlanti and all of the answers to those questions. Gotham, Robin's parents are coming, but no Harley Quinn yet. Those hoping for a Harleen Quizelle or Harley Quinn appearance on Gotham will have to wait a little longer, but a parental origin story for Robin is definitely in the works. Gotham star Ben McKenzie, who plays James Gordon, first hinted at the Graysons might make a cameo in an article I cited in last week's News with Nico. Now, Gotham showrunner Bruno Heller confirmed to Entertainment Weekly that the series has an episode coming up where we learn how Robin's parents got together. However, despite the rumors, don't hold out your breath for a Harley Quinn role, at least for now. Quote, we haven't got Harley Quinn in it. Riddler's girlfriend is coming up, and Harley Quinn is definitely planned for later on, but so far, no. Another big Batman character, Harvey Dent, made his first appearance on Gotham in Monday's episode. A younger version of Scarecrow is also set to make his debut, while young Poison Ivy, played by Claire Foley, will return to the drama soon. Meanwhile, Fox earlier this month gave Gotham a full season order, extending its 16-episode first season to 22. 
NBC Universal pulls the plug on G4 channel officially. NBC Universal has decided to take G4 off the air for good. According to a statement the NBC Universal cable sent to the remaining providers still carrying the G4 channel, the company announced that the network will come to an end on November 30th. In 2013, there was talks that NBC Universal would rebrand G4 as the Esquire network, but ended up launching it on style instead. Even though the replacement fell through, NBC Universal ceased further investment in the network and decided that G4 would not air any new programs, only reruns of shows like Lost, X-Play, and Ninja Warrior, along with the occasional movie. G4 debuted in 2002 and was known for its original gaming shows such as Attack of the Show, X-Play, and Cheat. To be honest, I was surprised to learn that G4 was still on the air, as I thought it died years ago when they stopped making new programming before 2013. The following, Michael Ely cast as Ryan Hardy's next nemesis. We have a hunch that Almost Human's idealistic Dorian would be disappointed in Michael Ely's killer new role on the following. Ely has been cast as a brilliant chameleon-like murderer who will test Ryan Hardy's limits. The role is a leap from the actor's last series regular gig as an innocent caring android in Fox's cancel sci-fi drama Almost Human. His other TV work includes Common Law, Californication, and The Good Wife. Sean Bean to star in the Frankenstein Chronicles TV series. Sean Bean from Game of Thrones and Legends will star in a new television reimagining of Mary Shelley's watershed horror novel Frankenstein. The UK's ITV has announced a six-episode order of the Frankenstein Chronicles, a gritty crime drama with horror elements set in 1927 London. Bean plays Inspector John Marlowe, a talented detective who doesn't know the meaning of fear. Marlowe is recruited by Home Secretary Sir Robert Peel to investigate a macabre discovery in the Thames. Per ComingSoon.com, the body of a dead child is washed up on the shore and on further examination of the corpse, he is horrified to discover it's not actually a child, but rather a crude assembly of body parts arranged in a grotesque parody of a human form. The series was created by Emmy-nominated director Benjamin Ross and his Tort Blume collaborator Barry Langford. Filming is set to begin in Northern Ireland in January. I'm hoping that this in no way affects his Legends series, but I have a, I have a faith that it won't. Can't wait to watch this new series about Frankenstein. Marvel Studios narrows down actors for Jessica Jones and Luke Cage Netflix series. It looks like Marvel Studios is narrowing down their search for a lead in the series based on their character Jessica Jones. The show is Netflix bound and will be run by former Dexter producer Melissa Rosenberg. According to Deadline, Marvel has tested four actresses for the role. Kristen Ritter from Breaking Bad and The Bitch in Apartment 23, Alexandra Daddario from True Detective, Teresa Palmer from Warm Bodies, and Jessica DeGao from Arrow. This will be the second Marvel Studios series to debut on Netflix following Daredevil and it's based on Brian Michael Bendis's highly acclaimed comic series from the early 2000s titled Alias. The show won't be called Alias for obvious reasons as someone kind of beat them to the name several years back. Both the comic and the upcoming show center around Jessica Jones, a former superhero who goes by the codename Jewel and is now suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. This leads her to give up her costumed identity and start her own detective agency where she ends up helping ordinary people as well as other superheroes. One of those other superheroes is Luke Cage, one of Marvel's earliest African-American heroes who is also set to get his own series from Netflix following Jessica Jones. First, though, he is set to appear in six to seven episodes of Jessica Jones before appearing in his own series, so the casting search for Luke Cage is already on as well. It appears Marvel Studios is looking at two actors in particular for the role, Lance Gross from Crisis and Mike Coulter from American Horror Story Coven. Considering the fate of these two characters share in the comics, spoilers, they get married, I'm sure Marvel will want to make certain whoever they cast for Jessica and Luke have great on-screen chemistry. FX developing a new series based on Alan Moore's From Hell, perhaps looking to fill the serial 
killer drama hole that left by the end of Showtime's Dexter last year, the FX network has announced that they are developing From Hell, a new drama series based on the graphic novel About Jack the Ripper by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. From Hell originally ran in several installments over a very long period from 1989 to 1996 and was finally collected into one giant phone book size collection in 1999. Along with Moore's Watchmen, From Hell is considered one of the greatest graphic novels of all time. Fox has adapted the graphic novel once before, although they changed significantly from its source material in a movie starring Johnny Depp and Heather Graham, directed by the Hughes Brothers and produced by Don Murphy back in 2001. Although the movie was interesting and atmospheric, it really wasn't the graphic novel, which told the Whitechapel murders of 1888 from the killer's point of view. A movie like that would have been considered uncommercial back in 2001, but we live in a post-Hannibal and Dexter world now and anything goes. Don Murphy, who produced the original film, always envisioned the book as a television series, and FX specializes in dark event series like American Horror Story these days, so keep an eye out for this series in the future. Westworld gets series order at HBO. HBO has bought a season pass to Westworld. The premium cable channel is moving forward with its adaptation of the 1973 Michael Crichton film. The network announced the series order Monday. As previously reported, Anthony Hopkins will star as Dr. Robert Ford, the head of a futuristic theme park where robots go crazy and attack the guests. James Marsden, Ed Harris, Evan Rachel Wood, Fandy Newton, Jeffrey Wright, and Miranda Odo will co-star. Now that is one hell of a supporting cast if I ever saw one. According to the Hollywood Reporter article, the amusement park androids played by Marsden, Newton, and Wood can die and return with new personas, which means that the actors can play several characters. Westworld's premiere is slated for sometime in 2015 and will be on my watch list when it comes out. Orphan Black enlists Justin Chatwin for Season 3. Justin Chatwin, who recently appeared on the Showtime series Shameless, has joined the BBC America clone thriller for Season 3. The news was announced via the show's official Twitter account and followed by a photo from co-creator Graham Mason with the actor on set. Look for him in Season 3 in Spring 2015. It's official, Netflix is saving Longmire from cancellation. That's right, it's official, Longmire will rise from the dead and ride again. Netflix has picked up the previously cancelled series for a 10-episode fourth season that's set to launch in 2015, according to the company on Wednesday. In August, A&E axed the Western crime drama after three seasons, surprising fans and leaving them furious because season three ended on a pretty big cliffhanger. The series producers began shopping it elsewhere almost immediately, an effort that culminated in last week's early reports that Netflix was in talks to save the show. This isn't the first time Netflix has saved a series from the grim Reaper's grass. Last year, it revived The Killing for a shortened fourth and final season after AMC canceled the series for the second time. The company hasn't offered any indication that season four will be Longmire's last, and I hope that it's not. As for what fans should expect when the show returns, the series will pick up immediately after the gun went off in the season three finale. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right, so with that great news, we're going to talk talking about a Sleepy Hollow episode that was a little different than what the show normally is, but it was very good. It gave some great heartwarming, deep development to two of its lead characters, a part of Team Ichabod. So let's talk about the Sleepy Hollow episode, titled Mama. A series of strange deaths at Terrytown Psych leads to a shocking discovery of the spirit involved. Normally, Sleepy Hollow is a horror show that's mainly demon-hunting fun, but this week's episode actually kind of gave me the creeps, with the monster of the week being a ghost version of Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, convincing the patients of Terrytown Psychiatric to commit suicide, and get Jenny believing that her mother might have tried to kill her as a child because of the demons messing with her head. But an asylum episode is supposed to be creepy, because I remember being quite disturbed or creeped out by the 
supernatural episode that took place at an insane asylum, just as much as I was with this episode of Sleepy Hollow. Sadika, were you creeped out by this episode as well? Come, were you okay with the show being scary this week, instead of going the usual swashbuckling fun route? The creepiness of this episode was one of the things that I really enjoyed about this episode. The change-up of theme and feel of this episode added to the effect because Sleepy Hollow is usually more of a fun, light-hearted, swashbuckling, as you put it, romp through the horror genre. This week's use of a ghost of Nurse Ratchet-like character changed that up and went super creepy, and I really enjoyed that aspect of this episode, but I did not care for the Mills sisters' mother story arc. Sure, the backstory was important, but I'm not entirely sure why, but I did not like her appearance or the importance they put on the demons driving her insane. So I really did enjoy the creepiness of this week's episode and its feel, but not really, I wasn't really a fan of the focus on the Mills' mother, especially that feel-good reunion scene at the end. That just didn't fit for me. Was, do you think it was something that they wanted to get out of the way? Yeah. Because it, there was a mystery about it? Yeah, I think that might be it, and I wasn't really sold on it, so I, it just didn't grab me and, and really excite me. I don't I don't know. It just felt forced this week. I, I don't know what it was. Yeah, yeah. Go I mean, it, it's something that they were bringing up and bringing up. Can I feel like this put an end to it? Sure. So uh, maybe that's what they were trying to do. And on top of that, I mean, it was different, but I think it was a good move to maybe give Ichabod a backseat this week with everything that's going on. I mean, I know, Nico, you weren't the biggest fan of it, but I think Ichabod just doing the comic relief, got moral support to Abby this week, a little more slightly was normal. I thought it made sense because I felt that figuring out the reason behind their mother's death meant that the episode needed to focus on Jenny and Abby. Can I think if Ichabod was more involved, developing his partnership with Abby, confiding with, to be with Katrina would have been a distraction from this story. Ultimately going from creepy to a heartfelt tale. Come out what a mother is willing to do to protect her children. Nico, do you think Ichabod needed to take a back seat for the story to focus on the Mill sisters? Okay, did you like how the story ultimately became come out a mother's sacrifice for her children? Absolutely, Dan. This was needed to be done so the focus could reside with Abby and Jenny and their search for what happened to their mother through solving this week's mystery of who or what was causing the patients to kill themselves. Despite not being a huge fan of the whole Mill's mother arc, I can applaud the use of the illness to sideline Ichabod and force the focus onto the Mill's sister. That was smart, and it did exactly what you said. It focused the story on what needed to be focused on this week. So that was absolutely well done. You know, I just was not a huge fan of that mother's arc, so yeah, it just, it didn't work for me. Everything else focused us on that, and that was great. Everything they did was well done. It just didn't capture my attention this week. Yeah, it, it really kind of going along with that, I mean, I think issue of this episode, maybe something that could have made you enjoy it more, was to Holly's role in the episode. I mean, him being involved with Abby and Jenny figuring out the mystery behind their mother's stuff was kind of, it just gave us the symbolism of him being there shows that he cares for both sisters. Right. But I was disappointed for another week that his interactions with Jenny didn't bring up any more backstory about them hooking up in the past or why he struggles with admitting his feelings for either of the sisters. Nico, were you disappointed we didn't get that? And was this a, a problem you had with the episode as to why you didn't really get into it? You know, I think that that is part of it because I was disappointed with the entire emotional aspect of this episode, especially the mother reconciliation scene at the end, which I already mentioned. So Holly's emotional and backstory stuff being absent was just more of the same for me this week. So I was I was disappointed because I really was and am still looking forward to understanding where he came from, how he was involved, what his backstory with Jenny is, how they met, where you know how that all came to be and everything like that. So it not being here when they were doing kind of a backstory episode just seemed a little odd. I, I think it's probably they couldn't or didn't want to jam-pack too much of that into this episode and give it its own episode to focus on, which is fine if they do it well. It's just we were kind of expecting it already. Yeah, especially with kind of 
last week's episode kind of gives the idea that that's where it was going to go. And we're like, okay, well, they're just going to do it next week, and then they didn't do it. Exactly. Like, I'm kind of getting impatient for it. Exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, Nico, you called it. God, the amulet making Katrina see the grotesque baby Moloch, because just a regular baby or child, because we saw later in the episode. It's called, uh, what effect do you think Devil's Breath is going to have on Katrina? Okay, well, Henry's jealousy of Moloch, getting to experience the embrace of his mother that he's always wanted, turned him against his master. Dan, this episode went exactly as I said it would with regard to Katrina. The amulet prevented her from seeing Moloch, but eventually she would realize what was going on and attempt to concoct a potion or means to kill Moloch. But by the time she does, it will be too late and she will have missed her opportunity. This is exactly what happened in this episode. She took too long and Moloch now has grown to the size of a small boy. Seriously, I should write this show because this is exactly what I thought was going to happen. But as for your second part about Henry's jealousy of Moloch, I do think it will cause him to struggle, but I don't think it's enough for him to turn against his master. Okay, I just thought maybe that was the tease or hit that. That's where it's going to go. I do think it'll cause some issues for himself. You know, he'll, he'll have some internal struggle, but I don't think it's enough. Okay, so there's going to be something else that's coming. I think so. If, if, if he does there. indeed go good, you know, and yes. turn against Moloch. Well, it, it feels like it's going to do that based on what Katrina and Ichabod are fighting for. Exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it would just go get the show's feel if they went a different way. Plus, we want more John Noble, so that's part of it. Good. finally, I liked how this episode resolved a lot of Team Ichabod's trust issues with Captain Irving by saving his life. However, the guy still needs to get a win after being dragged through the rigor this season. Because I really don't know what to make of his recent escape. Nico, do you think this is set up for Irving to fully rejoin the team? Or was his escape a part of it being controlled by signing his soul away to Moloch? I think this is the way that they are going to bring Irving back into the fold and make him a full member of the team once again. I assume they are going to make him a fugitive to somehow bring the sheriff into the arc as well, but I'm not sure what the goal is or how they're going to handle it. I don't think him escaping was him being controlled by Moloch or even Henry, because earlier in the episode he mentioned that he was still in control of his actions. I think he may start exhibiting those features of not being in control, full control of his actions in, in a future episode, but at the moment I still think he is fully in control and just escaped because he saw a chance and needed to take the opportunity to get out and maybe help fight to restore his soul in his, on his own terms and not just sitting in the insane asylum trying to wait until Team Ichabod finds it the right time to go about doing something about it. So I think he's being proactive about trying to get his soul back. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That that's I mean that's what he's trying to do and find his way. I don't really want to see him become a villain or a bad guy. Again, that may happen and that, and that question may be brought up next week. But I'm glad to see he's back in the fold and running around and stuff. Because I just feel like him being in the prison has I mean, the same stuff has just kind of gone on too long. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and this is a good actor who has been in movies and he's pretty, you know, well recognizable. So I just was surprised that, you know, we haven't gotten more of seeing him. And, and it's kind of some of the fun moments that we had with him last season. So his story's been kind of more dark this year. Yeah. And I want to see fun, fun, fun Orlando Jones. Exactly. So with that, we're going to move on to a Castle episode named after a very, very epic film, Once Upon a Time in the West. Castle and Beckett pose as newlyweds at the Old West style resort to discover the truth about a murder victim. I guess we called it that Castle and Beckett not inviting Ryan Esposito, get a lady to the wedding, would be played off for some humor. But it still bothered me they weren't at the ceremony, even though the way the guys got upset about it was quite shallow. Nico, do you think the side story got a little extreme when it came to Ryan and Esposito's frustrations towards not, not being able to be present at the wedding? I, I thought this worked for what it was, a plot device to move the story forward. I didn't see it as much more than that, and since 
since Captain Gates helped show them they were just being petty and should be happy for their friends and they and they ended up giving Beckett some extra time off, it all worked out in the end and will thankfully not have a, a lasting effects. You know, it, it, it all got wrapped up in this episode and I'm happy for that. I don't think it was anything to be worried about or anything that, you know, annoyed me too much. It was just a plot device that kind of moved the story forward, gave some comedic relief, and that's about all it was. Gave the actor something to do as well. Yeah, exactly. Good. Really, the rest of the episode, and this is the best part of it, was just having fun with Castle, aiming to misbehave, get the setting of a Wild West resort, having a rough time taking down his whiskey, getting into saloon fight, get taking Beckett on a wagon led by two horses he affectionately named Brian and Esposito. You know, did you have as much fun watching our boy Nathan Phillips get this Wild West setting because he did playing around in it? You can also, while you're at it, share with us some of your favorite moments from this adventure with Castle of the Old West, because that was just what it was, it was just fun moments. Yeah, Dan, I really enjoyed this episode. I thought they had so much fun and told a realistic story in a far-fetched setting that we had to love it. The way they tied a murder mystery in New York City back to a dude ranch-style resort in Arizona was totally believable. I also love that Castle got in a bar fight that he played off as part of the experience, a high news standoff that evolved into a gunfight where Beckett had to come in and save him, and the hunt for gold were just all the ways they found to incorporate Western themes and tropes into this episode. I loved it. It just all worked this week and was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I really did. I was laughing all the way through, just really chuckling and giggling. It just really, just, this was a fun, fun time. Yeah. Now, I see Castle of the Whole Lights, as I said, was just a fun, fun time. It was something my whole family enjoyed as well. But they commented on the fact that maybe Beckett's seductive black cowboy girl outfit was kind of out of character because she usually dresses more conservative. I mean, don't get me wrong, she looked good in the outfit. Could see Castle's reaction was a lot of fun. But, I mean, is this kind of a warning sign that of Castle being on so long, the characters are going to become an inter- imitation, become their former selves? Click on the now sometimes overly cutesy Misty Show, known as Bones. I mean, a lot of fans are concerned about this this season. God, I mean, was this episode one of those sites? I didn't think it was. I thought it was Nathan having fun, but I mean, which, where do you stand out at the No, they were just having fun with the theme of this week and the idea that people dress and wear sexy stuff on their honeymoon. So this was just the show having fun with those concepts. Yeah, I think really, really Castle gets into trouble because when it does these ridiculous overarching plot lines, the, the fun theme stuff, I don't think it's gotten stale yet. No. It, it works a lot better, and I, and I think that's just because the show had already had that built in early on with a character like Nathan Phillips. I think, you know, with something like Bones following a scientist, got a group of scientists, that's a little pushing it when you do the theme stuff. So I think that's where it was. Okay. And now with the mystery, yes, it was kind of predictable this week. Got similar to the psych episode that took place in a Wild West town. Because it's interesting how two shows this week were kind of based off a of psych episode. We'll get into that when we get to Supernatural. But who doesn't love a good old-fashioned search for gold? Getting with a classic showdown between Castle and the vampire hunter villain going blanking on his name that appeared on Angel. Which Beckett stepped in and won in classic Castle backfire fashion. Nico, were you also someone who thought this mystery was predictable, but at least had fun with it for containing excellent Western tropes. Yeah, it was a predictable mystery, but still, it was a lot of fun. As I mentioned before, I really enjoyed how they were able to incorporate things like the hunt for gold, the high noon showdown, and all the other excellent Western tropes into a cohesive and interesting primary story arc. I really enjoyed this episode and had a lot of fun seeing Nathan and Stana really have fun buying into the theme and idea of an Old West Castle episode. Also, how cool was the Bonanza burning map graphic and the Western Castle opening sequence? All really dumb 
done well this week. They thought of everything, and it all worked so well for me this week. Excellent episode. Yeah, I, I agree with you. They, they did everything. I mean, it was a fun honeymoon episode, but good thing they did everything we wanted from Castle more. Because that's a good thing. I mean, there's not much more to say about this because it was very, I mean, kind of dry on what it was, but at the same time, really fun to watch. It. I mean, that's, that's what you got to do with TV shows. So, good deal on Castle. Can't wait to see where they go next week. I think it's going to be a little bit darker as they're kind of got the approach to the mid-season finale, but that'll be good. I I think this one, the next week's darker episode, could not all based on the big overarching theme of Castle getting his memory back, so I think it'll be played off really well. And with that, we're going to move on to a Supernatural episode, which was kind of gave the brothers a different way of getting in on a Supernatural case. So that was pretty cool. So let's get into the Supernatural episode called Ask Jeeves. <laughs> Dean learns that Bobby or his next of kin have been named as a beneficiary in an heiress's will, so he convinces Sam to take a road trip with him to claim their fortune. But when they arrive, things aren't quite as they hoped or imagined. With there being ten seasons of Supernatural, there's not a lot they haven't done before, but this episode being inspired by the board game Clue, or more 13 Dead and Drive, in my opinion, if you played that, felt like something fresh. Again, Psych had a Clue-inspired episode a couple years ago, but I wouldn't call this episode Supernatural stealing their idea, because they seem to make it their own by during the elements of their universe that they're supernatural creatures. Nico, did you also feel like this was a surprisingly fresh idea for a 10-year-old supernatural? Surprisingly, yes. Supernatural doing their own Clue episode seems like a rehash of something we've already seen, but they did it so well and put the supernatural touch on it that it really did feel like its own thing. I can't believe I'm saying this, but this is two very good Supernatural episodes in a row, and one more, and Supernatural will be on a hot streak. Seriously, I was extremely surprised but satisfied with this great Supernatural Clue episode. I couldn't help but laugh every time Sam or Dean picked up a classic item from the game like the candlestick in the library or a lead pipe and rope in the attic, even though the attic wasn't a true clue location. It still works. Really great episode. And the board game was even in the episode. Yeah, yeah, it was on the shelf. That was great. Yep, yeah, great, great references there. Just, I, I really liked this idea. I, I thought it was going to be a real throwaway episode, but I had a great time with it. And in addition to feeling fresh, I really liked how the brothers had a personal stake in the case because they were collecting Bobby's inheritance. I mean, that was the motivation of the episode. It wasn't going to hunt a supernatural threat. I mean, they ran into one once they got there, but they didn't know it was coming. Right. Because not only was this a different way to get the Winchesters cutting a supernatural threat, but it enticed me with watching the episode, because I really wanted to know that piece of backstory that connected the beloved character, Bobby Singer, to this wealthy heiress. Because was uncovering unknown information about Bobby, something that made you driven to watch this episode? It definitely got me invested early in the episode before we knew exactly what we were getting, but I almost wish there was had been more of a connection with Bobby rather than he yeah. was hunting the shapeshifter father and spared the maid way back when. I think it could have been even better if the mother was a shapeshifter and Bobby was the father or something like that where it would have had a more emotional impact when the brothers had to kill the shapeshifting maid, which we'll discuss in a moment. But even so, it was a great story, so I was happy with the way it went. It just seemed like maybe a missed opportunity for an even more emotional connection. Yeah, they got it to do its job to entice us into watching, but they did maybe really fall through completely in the end. Got your little theory about uh, Bobby possibly being the father. That really would have complicated come the end of the episode, what happened at the end with Dean. Because I don't know if that would have been too much of a dead giveaway or not. Yeah. And having the maid be the one behind the murders instead of going with the classic butler trope was clever. But I was impressed that they took it a step farther by making her a shapeshifter. Who almost got away with it. Through the hairdress having stainless steel silverware instead of real silver. Because the reveal of Bobby being 
a beneficiary because Mary the shapeshifter's life, since she was the character's daughter, was interesting. It's not like Bobby's character. Nika, what did you think of the shapeshifting maid being the killer? Okay, what did you think of the reason why Bobby was a beneficiary? Again, I like the shapeshifter be- maid being the killer, but I thought maybe it would have had a more emotional impact to have Bobby be the father rather than just the hunter that spared the child slash baby monster on the promise that the mother would lock it away for the rest of the life. Think of how difficult it would have been for Sam and Dean to kill Bobby's kid, even if she was a murdering monster. That could have been a really interesting and really emotional episode. Of course, that emotional episode would never have fit within this clue theme or the fun episode it entailed. Thus, I guess I'm happy with the way the episode went down so that we got such a great episode that was a whole lot of fun to watch, but it really could have been, if they went a different way, a very emotional episode, and it would have been very difficult for Sam to just kind of, I don't know, yeah, let it go when Dean killed the monster so eagerly at the end of the episode. Yeah, and I think they decided the time wasn't right to go there yet. I mean, they're not as close to a mid-season finale as the other shows recovering, so maybe that was why they didn't go as deep with that, or they just didn't want to give away that they're trying to, that demon deed is still there, or there's residual effects of the Mark of Cain, or it be the demon, or I don't know, whatever the heck that turns out to be. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, my guess is that it's it's not Demon Dean. My suspicion is that it's residual effects or latent effects of the Mark of yeah. Cain, which seems to affect a human Dean much less than a Demon Dean, so he's able to push it off longer and not need to kill as frequently, but still seems to cause him to enjoy killing and even have a need or want to kill when he gets the opportunity. Thus, this killing and Dean's seemingly need to kill is something we need to keep an eye on, and by we, I mean Sam. Anyway, that's where I think this is going so far. I think that's where this episode kind of led us back down that path. We had kind of let it go for an episode or two, and now it's like, hey guys, remember, this is still going on in the background. Well, the Dean has gone so back and forth in this episode episode, and then the, that last episode was the one before it, where, you know, he, he does something really nice, and then he does something really dark. So that's why I feel like it's visual effects. Yeah. Because I think if he's still possessed, or he still was a demon, it, it would, it, there wouldn't be as much duality. Yeah, I agree. Um, the other thing is, and I think they could have kept the idea with the shapeshifter, be Bobby's daughter and whatnot, but the way this episode started out, kind of going back over the different types of supernatural creatures that were on the show, come in the opening, I thought the family members or the people that were there to get the will were going to end up being different types of monsters. Yeah. And I think that would have made it even better, too. That would have been. Just us that much more in the episode. Agreed. I, I really like that idea. I hadn't thought of that, but that is definitely a way that it could have still been really fun with the clue theme and kind of fit with that now and then intro. Right, exactly. I mean, that's just what they set us up for. Yep. Kind of, again, this might have been so much was thought and effort was put into the 200th episode of making sure that was good. Good that they kind of overlooked the potential of this episode or more things they could have done. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. And, and again, it could have been a budget thing, too. Because to do all the monsters that they went over because the beginning of the episode, that might have cost quite a bit. So I, I don't know if that's where it was, too, but I would think that with this being the veteran show on the network that they would be able to afford something like that, but I don't know. Again, you got to pay for the big-time splash special effects somehow, right? Right, exactly. So, yeah. Alright, so before we get off into a tangent that should be on our DC Nation podcast, let's move on to a Person of Interest episode that was a lot like a movie nominated for Best Picture a couple years ago called The Departed. So let's talk about the Person of Interest episode. Did a pretty good job of setting up what I think is going to be a solid season finale next week, I'm thinking. Yeah, I think so. So let's talk about the Person of Interest episode called Point of Origin. (laughs) 
Reese volunteers to be an NYPD police academy instructor, keep an eye on a young officer whose suspicious actions make him question her motives. Meanwhile, Martine gets information from Samaritan and hunts a member of the team. I was torn between fully enjoying this episode because Jonathan Nolan's interpretation comes into departed. Kind of wanting a story that was more about Reese teaching police academy recruits to maybe set some of them up as assets of the machine because I'm kind of visualizing like Reese and Fitch leading a group of youngsters against Samaritan. Like what went on with Batman and Frank Miller's graphic novel, The Dark Knight Returns, when the government lost control. Nico, did you feel that this episode should have focused more on Reese being a police academy instructor? Well, indeed that could, and I agree would, have been an interesting way to go. I think to fit within the confines of what we know of this season's story so far, the way this episode went probably was the best possible outcome and pathway. Yeah. I think Reese as an instructor was a great single episode idea, and they played with it very well this episode. But for long-term story progression and storytelling, I think it could be very limiting to the types of stories Reese could be involved with, and it would severely hinder his abilities to be out in the field long-term, because it would seem out of place for an instructor to continually be out in the action and not back at the academy. Thus, for this week's case, definitely it worked, but I don't see it being a long-term reassignment, because it just doesn't work with what Reese needs to do to save persons of interest. Yeah, maybe it's a tease that it could go there. Come, I just, I feel like somehow that with their cover identities, especially Reese and Fitch, that the machine has set them up to have good influence on people. Or, or to get them to kind of side with the machine, if that makes sense. Because the show has established the idea that Elias got a lot of his control and support through being a teacher. Yeah. And that influence on them. So I'm wondering if we're somehow going to see that at some point with Reese and Fitch in the future. And this was kind of a tease that that could happen or go there. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. And I, I would not mind if it went that way. But I just, for this 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 episode, it, it probably just yeah. was a tease. Right, because there, I mean, it, it's like having too many toys in the sandbox. Yeah, well, he definitely did there. make an ally in that IA investigator right. and that under, the un, undercover cop. So I, it definitely had fruit that there's at least one more person who's on their side or, or could be considered an ally. So in that sense, it did start doing that. And if they continue to do that and go back to some of the people they've saved and recruit them as allies, I definitely think that they could be leading a much larger team than just the four or five of them so far. Yeah, and speaking of Reese and his police life, what's going on with him and that psychiatrist, Iris? I mean, is she supposed to be a love interest for him on this one? I'm not sure, but I hope not. I think she's supposed to be his conscience or something like that. Someone to make him question his actions and determine just what exactly he is willing to do and help him to be more of a moral character. Someone who would not be pressuring Finch to kill a senator rather than trying to find another way out of the situation like we saw in late in last season's arcs. Anyway, I don't like the idea of her being a love interest, but she did seem a little flirty at the end of the episode after he saved her life, so maybe that's where they want to go with it. I think, rather, she's really just his conscience and making him face his actions so that he at least lives an examined life. Yeah, here's my thing with it. Uh, she's coming across as too 1940s serial damsel distrust-like. Okay. You know, like Lois Lane from like the old Superman yeah. stories. Okay. And I just, I think that doesn't really fit the cutting-edge nature of this show. Okay, I can see that. Like, this is this is the, if vigilantes existed, I feel like this is the most realistic approach towards that concept. Like, it would be like this, if vigilantes existed. Because I don't think you'd have a character like this who would just kind of stumble into danger kind of thing. Or be so naive to not really realize what's going on. 
Right, right. That's the big thing that she's so that she could be so naive not to understand what's going on. Right, yeah. like I mean, if she's a, uh, a psychiatrist or police officers, wouldn't she have picked up pretty quick that that Reese was like tailing a suspect? Well, she works with cops a lot, but she probably doesn't know much about what they do other than from what she's heard. So she hasn't ever been out in the field like right like that. So I could understand her not understanding what's going on in that sense, but she just kind of came across as too stupid for me. <laughs> okay, you know. Okay, I mean that's just that. That's just how I felt, and I was like, like Reese in the past, people we've thought have been love interests grew a little more intelligent than that, and so that was interesting. Again, it's not as interesting as what's been going on with the whole Shaw, is she with Rude, or is she in a Fusco thing? And really, this episode I gave us more confusion on that front. Because there was kind of quite a bit of flirting that went on between Fusco and Shaw while they were taking out a superior officer connected to this week's person of interest. And it's interesting that in the episodes where Shaw does the flirting with Fusco, she's not interacting with Root, or Root's not in the episode. That's, that's interesting. So, uh, you got in the great Shaw's love interest debate continue for you this week, or with this week's episode? So. Yeah, I agree that my feelings on the whole Shaw love interest dynamic got even more confused, and the debate is still obviously raging after this week's episode, but for the opposite reason. I felt that Shaw and Fusco did not flirt enough while they were hanging out okay. and working together this week. They seem more like friends than possible love interests this week. I don't know, I guess it just runs hot and cold sometimes, and this one was them running cold for me. I mean, they were friendly and all, but I just didn't feel that same spark that we've seen between them previously. They are having way too much fun, with our heads on this one. I think so. I mean, we, we talked way too long about it last week, which is kind of hilarious that now this week it's still. What's going on here? Yeah, exactly. We're turning right. into fangirls on this one. I know, I know. This is bad. But uh, let, let's get away with that. Let's talk about some villains. Okay. Um, in the time that this episode put into display Dominic's genius and ruthlessness as, I guess, a big bad for this season or a long-term villain, God, went a long way into making me more interested in him and what he's doing and, and wanting to follow his evil plans. But I would rather see what I thought we were building up to, which is round two between the person, Kavitra's team, and Elias. Because I just like that character as a villain more. I like it better. And that just might be because of my love for Enrico Colantoni from Veronica Mars and everything else I've seen about. But, you know, that's just how I feel. But maybe Goliath becoming a target will eventually put him, as I mean, I mean Elias, in that position to have another chess match against Fitch and his team. What do you think, Nico? Well, Dan, earlier this season I mentioned that I thought that Samaritan was going to come after after Elias, and that would force the Person of Interest team and Elias to work together to go up against Samaritan, and in the process, the Person of Interest team and Elias may defeat, or at least cripple or hinder Samaritan in the process, uh, and in that same process, eliminate any and all opposition to Elias taking over New York City as the big crime boss. I still see that happening to an extent, but I think that it will be the Person of Interest team and Elias teaming up to go up against the Brotherhood and Dominic as the leader, and in that process, the Brotherhood will be wiped out, and Elias will become King of New York City again. I'm not sure how Samaritan fits into that battle, but maybe that is still to be for next season as well. Either way, I think the coming Person of Interest team and Elias team-up will result in Elias gaining immense power and influence in New York City and becoming an even worse big bad for the Person of Interest team to have to go up against next season. I mean, we've already talked about that before, but that's where I think it's still going. Well, yeah, you're going to have to blow him up. You're going to have to make him more powerful than he is right now. Yeah. Too, especially if he gets designed to either replace rear get Samaritan or how oh, that's all going to work. Right. I, I don't see him taking over Samaritan because... No, no, because he's so opposed to it. Yes. Yeah. So I, I don't know how that's all going to work. But again, he, he needs more power in this. Or, or connection. Maybe his criminal empire extends from this or something. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. 
it really, I mean, I, I, the reason why I'm so harping on this Elias battling the person of interest team again, and that happening again, getting a rematch, is I just think it's fascinating for it having this, like, almost John Henry versus the machine complex. And I could foresee that playing into the war with Samaritan, because Greer's theory about good old-fashioned human intelligence may have him enlist the help of Dominic to counteract the person of interest team's human advantage over Samaritan, which I believe will be Elias. Sonika, what do you think of the possibility that these gangsters, who seem to be technical geniuses, are going to be used? used by the machine of the spirit to do battle. Dan, that does seem to address my issues with my theory from before. I like the idea that Greer and Samaritan are being forced to use human or human intelligence against the machine and the person of interest team because that is what the person of interest team and Elias are for the machine, a means of gathering human and using it to protect the person of interest each week. Ultimately, it will lead to a massive showdown and I'm excited to see it happen because that's exactly what we think it's going to be and it's going to be really, really good this season. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited for it. I, I think it's going to really ramp up next week, so that's going to be good stuff. Again, again, I, I just think Dominic has this interest in computers and he realizes the power of them, but he doesn't have access to them yet. And if Greer figures out that this guy is interested, and gives him the keys to the kingdom, go oh boy, look out, we're going to have some trouble. So that's nuts. And speaking of trouble, I was really amazed that Samaritan and his assets were able to track down Shaw so quickly following Grice, otherwise known as Captain Boomerang's attempt to cover her tracks at the end of last week's episode because I thought this was going to be a slow bird kind of thing. Yeah, with Shaw's cover now blown, because he's going to impede the person of interest team's operation. Yeah, it's in the sense that all their covers won't be blown. Also, I mean, will they have to go underground? Okay, could this mark the beginning of former person of interest turning around to help people that save them? Tell us your thoughts on all this, Nico. Come, I'm excited for what's going to go down. Yeah, Dan, we sort of discussed this a little bit last week, and we both believe that Shaw being unveiled or her cover blown would be the major question and more of a slow burn development for Samaritan discovering her identity, and whether that will blow her cover and thus blow the other person of interest team members covers as well. Thus, I was completely surprised that this was where it went in this single episode this week, and that essentially the Samaritan operative found her in a single episode, and next week we'll have that showdown between the two operatives, Shaw and Samaritans. However, I think Shaw will be able to evade and either confront and best the other operative, or she will be able to escape clean. However, I also think that Samaritan has been unable to identify Shaw or her cover identity because it was unable to ID her in the last scene, and it was only the human operative that was able to recognize Shaw from the partial photo that she had. Thus, if Shaw can evade her and keep her cover, and thus the covers of all the Person of Interest team members will remain safe. Regardless, I, I guess this is going to be the mid-season story arc rather than a second half arc like I initially thought, because they did go so quickly and cover it all in this single episode. Why do you said some of the cover identity stuff could only go so far? Yeah. And, and run so far, and I think this is the point where it, it just, it's done. Yeah. And again, you can't really do much more with Shaw's cover identity because the theme thing kind of went up in smoke, because she doesn't like the uh, cosmetic, cosmetics job or whatever she's doing at that department store. Yeah, I'm just hoping that they can establish those cool spots or those blind spots in the city so they can operate more and the machine can yeah. take over more of the the cameras. And that's how I thought it was going to go before this whole Samaritan uncovers the cover identities. So I, I just thought it was a little early for this to happen. Well, there might be some way around it too. We don't know. That is true. That is true. But it was an exciting cliffhanger to get the episode on. Very 
much so. It's, they are masters of that. So you're like, oh, where's this going to go? And come, this is a really big one. I mean, normally the episode, end, it, I mean, it feels like an ending, but it's left open. Yeah. This was a straight up cliffhanger. Oh, yeah, definitely. So it was good stuff. I, I don't think it'd be quite as good as the mid-season finale last year with the end of HR. Right. So people don't hype too much, but I think it'd be good. Okay. So with that, we're going to move on to another episode of a show that had a whopper of a cliffhanger as well. Because I'm really excited to see where this one's going to go. So let's talk about the Star Wars Rebels episode that I think just launched this episode into even more higher enjoyment for Star Wars fans called Empire Day. A refugee of the Empire seeks help from the Rebels to get off the planet with important Imperial information. This was a Star Wars story that I thought had it all. Big time action, villains galore, outstanding character development, and what I said was coming of Ezra exhibiting the signs of anger, got fear that could lead to the dark side. Again, that doesn't mean I think Ezra is going to pull an Anakin, could actually go to the dark side, but it's something he does to contend with, much like Luke Skywalker did in the Empire Strikes Back. Because this episode did a good job of doing this through giving us information about Ezra's parents. What do you think about it all, Nico? I like this episode so much more than last week's on the supply run where the ladies ran into space monsters. Not that that episode was terrible or even bad, but this one seemed much more what I expect from and want from a Star Wars Rebels episode. It dealt with and showed more of Ezra's Jedi training and explained that Ezra was born on Empire Day and that that is a terrible day for him every year. I thought they handled the reveal about his family, his birthday, and his hating Empire Day, despite it being his birthday, very well in this episode. I, I really enjoyed this episode. It was very, very well paced. Yep. This, you know, Last week was just a very cut and dry, fun, let's deal with monsters episode. And this was just like something that felt like it was out of a Star Wars movie. Yeah, last week was a standalone episode that probably won't have huge impact on the rest of the series. This one was all, this was very important to the serial aspect of this this series. Right, it was like one of those big Cold Wars arcs yep. that they did that were just really epic. God, they hadn't really gotten into that sort of thing yet on this show. Because this seems to mark the beginning of it, and man, it was good. Yep. And really, I loved everything that went down with the Rebels, causing trouble at the Empire Day Parade from using fireworks as a distraction and Kanan acting like a drunken buffoon because it reminded me of the romantic ending to Animal House where the Delta House guys terrorized a local parade. Nico, did you like the fun, mischievous feel of the Rebels causing trouble at the parade? I did like the way the Rebels used the fireworks as a distraction and how they were able to destroy the new TIE Fighter or the, the, new, the new advanced TIE Fighter. Then Kanan pretended to be stoned or drunk and Ezra jumping in to pretend Kanan was his super excited, super drunk father. All of this led, as you said, to a fun and mischievous feel to the episode that really was great. Exactly what we needed this week. I just thought it was hilarious that a Jedi we just got to see a Jedi act drunk. Yep. That was just really just fun. And it really makes Kanan an original character compared to the other Jedis and he has his own personality. It's cool. Yeah. So I like that. I mean he's not Obi-Wan but he you know he kind of shows signs of the younger joyful Anakin and Obi-Wan combined. Okay yeah. But he's not going to go too far where he's going to endanger the crew or do something ridiculous. You know he's not as reckless as Anakin was I guess. Good. Kind of speaking of causing trouble, the actual process of causing trouble at the parade was all fun and games, but getting away from the Empire after destroying a new advanced TIE fighter gave this episode an Empire Strikes Back feel of the good guys having their back against the wall. Because the Inquisitor and Agent Callus both pursued the rebels. Because it was revealed to us through a friend of Ezra Parrots that the Empire was performing the experiments with technology to make a living being devoid of all emotion. I know for being a big Star Wars fan that the Empire performed cruelty through 
through slavery. Could, of course, killing people. But I didn't know they went this far. Could does that mean that the advanced android we saw working for Lando in Cloud City was a human that they had done this to? Instead of being a human humanoid-looking droid? Like the female droid, I think Jerry was her name, did out of the Empire? Could Nico, did you have any knowledge before seeing this episode that the Empire performed these experiments? Could, did you like the idea? Also, did you think having both a Inquisitor and Agent Callus in the episode raised the stakes to make it worthy of being called Empire Day? Dan, the guy on Cloud City was indeed a similar being that was originally a human who had a cybernetic implant put on him to run the controls of Cloud City. It is unknown whether that was voluntary or forced by the Empire, but after seeing this episode, it seems more likely that it was not voluntary. That being said, I do like the idea merely because it makes us hate the Empire that much more for the cruelty yeah. and hu inhumane things it does to its own citizens. Next up, having both the Inquisitor and Agent Callus really raised the stakes this week and made it more exciting and uncertain as to how and whether everyone was going to make it out in one piece this week. I really thought maybe somebody was going to get captured in the escape. Really great stuff. Well, it's and not I'm, over yet. Right. Really great stuff and I'm loving both of these villains and they're working together just raises the stake every time and we could see something in the second half that maybe doesn't go right. Well, and, I, and I love it how they're playing this up like who should we hate more? Right. The Inquisitor or Agent Callus. Especially that scene with Zeb where he wanted to shoot Agent Callus. He's like no 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 point the other guy he's worse. Yeah. Yeah exactly. But I think he would have had a better chance shooting at Callus than the Inquisitor in my opinion. Yeah probably especially since the Inquisitor has a lightsaber to deflect it. Right. I was like okay dark side powered being regular guy. Shoot the regular guy. But uh, you know it, it was exciting anyway. When villains team up it's always trouble for everybody. Yep. And that's what it that's what worked. Because again it, we really need to hate the Empire and stuff so that, that computer enhancements that they were doing to aliens and people like that really was a good incentive to make us hate them and understand where Ezra was coming from. And another concept that blew my mind which Nico kind of already touched on was Ezra being born on the same day the Empire was created. Because in my opinion I feel like that's almost the Force's way of balancing out the evil that occurred on that day. Because really this gives an even stronger motive as to why Ezra joined the Rebels and wants to learn to become a Jedi because he wants to eradicate this concept of his birth coincide with the day the galaxy went to hell. Come, Nico, where do you stand on this study development? Can you think it enhances Guzra's reasons to battle the Empire? It was definitely shocking and a huge revelation. It also means that Ezra and Luke and Leia are essentially the same age because Luke and Leia were also born either on Empire Day or around that same time. I'm not sure Ezra being born on Empire Day really gives him any more reason to hate the Empire than anyone else, but his parents' backstory and their being rebels before there were even rebels has more to do with him being a rebel now and his reasons for battling the Empire. So I don't really think it was just because his birthday was on Empire Day. I think it was more that his parents wanted to show him that they he could be free and that the Empire was not the way, and that led to him eventually being a rebel himself. It was kind of like a contemplation of things. Okay. You know, in my opinion, I mean, yes, the Empire Day was a part of it, but I think, I think we're going with it. It was like a combination of a lot of stuff. Yep. But the Empire Day was just one more thing to add that fuel to the fire. Because speaking of adding the fuel to the fire, oh man, did this episode end with Cliffhanger done right. First of all, I was so engaged in the action going on that I didn't even see it coming. And ending the episode with a bombshell of a line like, Gazra, I know what happened to your parents, would make anyone immediately want to watch the next episode, even if they had to strike someone down with a lightsaber. Nico, are you in agreement with me that this was a cliffhanger done right? Could maybe second place or a little bit lower down uh, to uh, Luke, I am your father in terms of the Star Wars universe? Yeah, I, I don't think it ranks up there with Luke, I am your father, but it, it definitely was a good a good cliffhanger and a good 
sort of revelation. The Luke, I am your father, that blew my mind. While this week's cliffhanger merely made me want to come back and watch next week's episode really bad. Sure, it will be interesting and exciting to learn just what happened to Ezra's parents and how that will affect his continued participation with the rebel cell, but it did not have an earth-shattering effect on me like Vader's revelation did. Regardless, I'm super excited for next week's episode. You know, but this is the thing with this show. Get stuff about the Star Wars universe we don't know. Yeah. Or we don't even have any idea where it could go. Where the Clone Wars stuff, yes, it was the animated series was very good, but the movies kind of hurt us in the set that we kind of knew where it was going to go. And I like that we're now getting Star Wars stuff that we're not sure how it's going to play out. And I like that it's, uh, it's so much more open-ended. That's why you know, I'm so excited for Episode 7 and, and why I enjoyed watching the original trilogy because, you know, it, it opened up a whole world of things to me. Because I didn't have this idea in the back of my mind of where it was ultimately going to go. So this is uh, this is Star Wars done right, and this is you know what made those the books so great and the original trilogy and got discontinuations good instead of going back and doing prequels. Exactly. So I just I just I am excited for this every week. This is just the Star Wars I've wanted to see for a long time, and I'm very proud of that. Agreed. So with that, we're going to move on to the show, another animated show that we're excited for every week. I mean, it's right up there on the Star Wars level of excitement. But uh, this week they kind of let us down slightly. So we're going to talk about this episode. I'm going to try to salvage. What we got here make it a little bit more interesting of a discussion. So bear with us here. We're going to talk about the Legend of Korra episode called Remembrances. Earth. Fire. Air. Water. In a clip show episode, Mako, Korra, and Bolin recollect their past. Mako tells Wu about his romantic entanglements and eventual breakup with Asami and Korra. Korra talks to Asami about her confrontations with Amon, Unalak, Vatu, and Zaheer. And Varric presents Bolin's life to the Earth Empire refugees in a style of an action film in which Bolin defeats all of Korra's previous enemies. As much as we anticipate watching The Legend of Korra every week, this episode being a clip show was like waking up on Christmas morning, coping for a bad cave playset, which was one of my favorite gifts as a kid, could ending up with socks. Plus, this show is running out of time. We need an episode recounting the past was a wasted opportunity to really hype things up into an epic series finale. Miko, were you also disappointed that we got a quick show? Extremely. This was a wasted episode in a show that does not have enough episodes left to be wasting them on a clip show. I was extremely disappointed. No matter how well you execute a clip show, it is still a clip show and thus a wasted episode. Essentially, this was due to the budget of the series being cut by an entire episode's cost, and thus we got this week's clip show that was forced to use previous footage to keep the cost down significantly. Essentially, Nickelodeon went to Korra and said, we're cutting your budget, and the amount they cut was essentially what they spent on a single episode, and thus we got a clip show here. But maybe this was the right decision to give us a cutting that's going to be satisfying. Oh yeah, that's definitely a possibility. It, it just meant that we got this in the middle, and maybe they could have just cut this out and saved that money, or just not done it, and we wouldn't have been upset with it, and just skipped to the next episode. I don't know. Maybe there was you something could have been that... a contract issue. That, that that's possible. There's always the business side we have to deal with when we're making TV shows. So you're absolutely right. There might have been a contract issue where we need these X number of episodes. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Again, that's a bummer, and I did not know that. That's why they went with the clip show. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll lay off of lay off of them a little bit more than what I said with my statements. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's still very disappointing. I was extremely disappointed. Yeah. But you know, it was a business decision, and they had to do it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Good. I. Since we are on the top of 
of going over past episodes. We could at least try to make this discussion somewhat worthwhile. Nico, why don't you share with us some of your favorite moments from watching uh, The Legend of Korra? Yeah, I really thought that Amon and Season 1's Equalist were the best villains so far, and the entire yeah. taking away bending was the scariest battle and threat Korra has faced in all four books. But Stupid. Zaheer and the Red Lotus are my second favorite villains. Last season's villains were really good. Yeah. Also, some of the stuff in the spirit world, and especially Iroh's appearances, those were yes, all fun. Love Iroh. I would have I would have to say the most most of my favorite moments from watching this series are the secondary story arcs, like Varric and Bolin's relationship, Varric and Julie, Bolin and his mover's career, the guest star appearance of Steven Yuen, who played the first Avatar Wan. I really loved seeing that story arc unfold, and that might be my favorite non-Cora main story arc element of this series. I agree. Yeah, I also really enjoyed Tenzin and his interaction with Korra. I think that's a beautiful relationship, and I really love that. But in yeah, J.K. Simmons played that outstandingly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in reality, I love too much about this series to mention anywhere near everything I've loved, because it really is a great series. Yeah, I'm kind of right there with you. I mean, we kind of matched up on a lot of the same things. I, some of my favorite moments included Varric and everything with him, especially the pooping money gag. Yeah. That was the moment I fell in love with that character, and I just, that's probably one of the best jokes in the series. Next to the original series having that reoccurring joke with the Cabbage Man's stand always getting destroyed. Yeah. I love this show's throwbacks to the original series. Getting flashbacks or appearances of characters got me excited was something I looked forward to. Minus the one appearance from Toph. That was kind of a bummer that didn't work out as well, but yeah. I still enjoy the throwbacks. The idea concept of pro betting yep. and watching uh, Korra and Bullhead and uh, Mako play the, the sport, that was always enjoyable. I really enjoyed that as part of the first season. That two-part episode, which you mentioned, Nico, about with Steven Yuo, who played the first Avatar Wad and how that explained how the whole the line of Avatars was all set up. Yep. That was good stuff. I loved Booby. Bang <laughs> Son, he just was always fun to watch. I loved the progression of his character and how he kind of saved the day at the end of season two. Yep. That was always good. I was very pleased with the Airbender race being revitalized, because I know that was something Egg really wanted, and that just made me happy to see that his wish came true, even though he wasn't there to see it. Yep. So I, I really liked that, because that just kind of capitalized on his battle and everything he fought for. Because I really enjoyed all of Korra's epic showdowns against the big bads of the series, because they were all very different and unique from each other. Yep. Because I really liked that. I mean, we had one, the second season one was just really cool visually, because it was like a monster movie. Because I really liked that. The first season was cool because it was her overcoming her, it was Korra overcoming something that was incredibly frightening, which was your bending being taken away. Because season three was very powerful because of just how tragic it all ended up. Yeah. And it's lasting effects on this season. Yep. Because even though I was kind of disappointed with it, this episode did redeem itself slightly by explaining the difference Korra has made in each of the characters' lives, and giving us Varric's outrageous recap of the show, which was quite hilarious in my book, especially the four-way phone call between all of Korra's enemies. Nico, did these concepts make this episode a little more acceptable in your eyes? Yeah, this week's clip show was no The Ember Island Players, the episode right. of Avatar The Last Airbender, where stage play functioned as a parody of the show. Because they After... had money to do that one. Exactly. After all, the production team had to reuse footage this time due to budget constraints I mentioned before. But at least they put some effort into the three segments, effort that showed off their self-reflection about the show and their acknowledgement of how the audience has received the show. That Ember Island players made fun of some of the quirks of the characters, but in this episode, the series turned the barbs more towards the actual show. Varric's recap was amazing and hilarious, and let's be honest, we'd probably go see that mover. Yes. But my favorite part was the way they made fun of the ridiculousness of the whole 
Mako, Korra, and Asami love triangle, and the little pop-up bubble heads were pretty funny stuff. If you did not find them annoying, I found them hilarious, actually. So, uh, yeah, Dan, this was more acceptable for me than initially when I found out it was going to be a clip show. I was very disappointed. Then I found out why, and it was the budget constraints. And then I actually watched the episode, and I was like, this is hilarious. They are making fun of themselves. It's a very clever way to work around an issue. Yeah, they're making fun of themselves. They're making fun of us a little bit, and they're addressing a lot of the issues that people have had with the show and doing it in a hilarious style. It was it was very well done, I thought. It was kind of like Supernatural breaking the fourth wall kind of style. Yeah, you know, I was extremely disappointed that it was a clip show, because I hate clip shows in any yeah. genre, any yeah. show, anything. But they did it about as well as you can expect with a clip show. And they made fun of themselves, and like you said, they broke the fourth wall in doing it. Of course, that relationship stuff, you and I have both thought it got a lot of hand on the show. Yeah. So I'm glad that they admitted that and, and had some fun with it. God, really props to them on that. And, and admitting that yes it's got a little ridiculous but we needed something to add drama to the show and I guess this show is about teenagers so there's going to be that which may also explain why they grew them up by three years for this last season give her what they wanted to do so it didn't feel as much that way yeah and, exactly. and again they did turn it around by making us sell me good coral friends and that was brilliant when they pulled that off so with that we're going to move on to the sitcoms which I assure you did not give us a clip episode at all we got some pretty funny ones so let's talk about the Big Bang Theory episode the champagne reflection all started with a big bang it's a banner day for Sheldon as he bids a sad farewell to his Fun with Flags podcast. Meanwhile, Leonard, Howard, and Raj probe a late professor's research in search of some hidden significance, and Bernadette is surprised when Penny reveals how her co-workers really feel about her. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory would have to be Sheldon's final Fun with Flags podcast. Most notably, the moments where Amy was dressed as a kangaroo, Sheldon was dressed as Betsy Ross, and LeVar Burton came in as a guest on the show. For Sheldon to ask him if his portrayal of George Washington Carver was racist. This was a hilarious cameo from the always beloved LeVar Burton. Because I can't believe they topped it at the end of this episode by Sheldon showing up at his house to ask him if he would dress up as a swastika for his comeback episode about the flags of Germany. Nico, what were your favorite moments from this week's episode? And are you sure you remembered to press the record button? Yeah, my favorite comedic moments from this week's episode are exactly the same, Dan. Sheldon's final Fun with Flags podcast was amazing. Especially, as you mentioned, the flashbacks. Amy was hilarious in, you know, the kangaroo was great. Sheldon, as Betsy Ross, another great one, but I just loved all of it. The fact that they had done 293 of them was amazing. <laughs> that's even more than you and I have done, so that yeah, that's hilarious. That's pretty sad, too. I don't know. <laughs> you know, LeVar Burton was, was a good guest, and I love that when he, at the end, when Sheldon is at his house, he's like, Will Wheaton told me to get a, told me to get a fence. Why didn't I get a fence? Why didn't I get a gate? <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I love that they referenced him. LeVar Burton's such a good sport about stuff, too. Oh, he's great. And you know, you you made a joke about remembering to press the record button. There yeah. have been a number of times where one of us or one half of the recording didn't get recorded properly, and that's why we have backups now. Yes. So, yeah, definitely uh, remembered to press the record button. Thing. That's why I enjoyed that joke so much. That's why it made me laugh so hard, because we've been there. Oh, yeah. Because we know what that's like. So, yeah, that was pretty good. Because I'm sure Andy, who does the 
uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast for us. Probably got a real good kick out of it, too, if you watch the episode. Because he's been through that situation as well. So I think it was a real funny moment for all of us here. Good ATA with that went down. Oh, it's a maddening feeling when you, you've lost an entire episode because either you didn't press the record button or the recording device fails or, or something gets screwed up and you only have the first half of the episode because Skype cut out and it stopped our recording or something like that. It's it's a maddening feeling. And so I'm glad that they poked fun at that and know our pain as podcasters. There's there's a method to the madness yes. of Sheldon this week because we've been that paranoid as well. So with that, we're going to move on to talking about an episode of New Girl that I got was hilarious. Very enjoyable. Maybe not as quite as good because the past two episodes, but I was satisfied with it nonetheless. So I talk about the New Girl episode, Teachers, which featured the sounds of Foreigner. Hey, girl, what you doing? Jess, Coach, and Ryan head to a weekend teachers conference headed by an education guru, and while Jess is away, Nick, Schmidt, and Winston plan a wild weekend. My favorite comedic moments from this week's episode were Nick teaching Schmidt how to do laundry and Winston how to use a ruler to cover their guys' weekend. Got the whole thing be topped off with them singing the songs Dove Foreigner underneath a blanket for it. So, Nico, since you know what love is, why don't you share with us the favorite comedic moments that you loved from this episode of New Girl? My favorite comedic moments were everything to do with the guys night from what they expected to be anything we can't do when jess is here and especially how girly it got and it turned out to be or how girly it turned out to be i love the jousting on the table peeping tomming it up watching the ladies across the way do yoga with winston's creepy commentary of course schmidt being unable to do laundry and of course the guys sitting around singing i want to know what love is or what are we gonna do sit around all night and talk about love <laughs> This had me in stitches, and it was great stuff. Excellent episode. Once again, New Girl is just nailing it every week. Oh, yeah. Exactly. It's great stuff. Really enjoyed the episode. Can't wait to see how they make us laugh next week with another Thanksgiving episode. And those are always good for New Girl. So speaking of Thanksgiving episodes, let's talk about a brilliant one for Modern Family that I thought was a big turnaround after two previously weak episodes. So let's talk about the Modern Family episode, Three Turkeys. Phil cooks for Thanksgiving and enlists Luke as his sous chef, but Claire secretly prepares another turkey when she doesn't trust him to get the job done. Meanwhile, Jay and Gloria's holiday travel plans fall through, though they come to regret not telling anyone about it, and Cameron comes up with an unusual idea to make Lily wear a dress for dinner. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family was, I was glad that the dynamic duo of Luke and Phil were back, so that was good stuff. Got the madness they went through when they thought that um, the turkey shrunk <laughs> that they were making. That was just hilarious. And the reason why the turkey shrunk is Gloria was trying to hide the turkey that she and Jay were trying to make because a part of their secret, we returned from vacation, early, quiet celebration without the rest of the family. And it kind of really backfired. And then when we got to the discovery that there were actually three turkeys made and how all that came together was quite funny how we had one turkey in a suitcase another one in Lily's backpack which hilariously knocked her over and then the shrunken turkey and I just thought how all that came together was quite hilarious I know Modern 
family has done a bunch of comedic events or mishaps glaring on the top of each other come a little bit better, especially with that Las Vegas episode. Come, that was downright hilarious. But this was pretty good up there, and I'm glad that they could maintain this ability even after being out for six seasons. So, good stuff, and uh, Deacon, I'll let you have your share your favorite comedic moment. Yeah, my favorite comedic moment was the cooking app Talking Sexy to Phil. I listened to her meringue instructions in the car last week. There was so much whipping and beating, I had to pull over. They even called back to this with Phil still listening to it after the meal was done. Continue to whip vigorously, Philip, until your meringue stiffens. Not a bad episode. Not a great one either, but not bad. Yeah, it was better than what we got last week, I thought. I thought so, too. Yeah. Good with that, well, it's time to wrap up the episode. Good again, we've got a little bit different of a schedule next week due to Thanksgiving. Get our Thanksgiving dinner and probably the writers of these shows we cover having Thanksgiving dinner. So we got quite a few of our favorites, but they're not all there. So let's have Nico take it away with what's going down next week in our closing. Yeah, next week's episode, we'll have a News with Nico section with all the TV and entertainment news that has come out in the next week, and we will continue our reviews of Castle, Sleepy Hollow, Person of Interest, Supernatural, Legend of Korra, and Star Wars Rebels, and our sitcom section, including an episode of New Girl, but no Big Bang Theory or Modern Family this week. So join us next week for all of that. Also remember that our entire back catalog is available. If you're just getting caught up on any of the shows we cover, go back and catch Dan and my thoughts on the episode. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairways.com. Now roll that pre-recorded closing. Yeah, and also, you can check out our spin-off podcast. Kaniko, you want to help me in describing the first one? Sure. The Hello Carriers podcast, which is Andy's podcast on our network, dedicated to covering episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We also have It's Tangent Time, which yeah. is Michael and Wu, and they talk about all kinds of things, geek-related, nerd-related, all the great stuff that we talk about in super in-depth, way more than right. you could do in a single episode of one of our other podcasts. So they dive deep in those episodes and talk about it and sometimes they just go off on major tangents that's why it's called tangent time exactly we also have the back catalog of longbow hunters the arrow podcast which has officially wrapped up but all of our back catalog is available so if you are going back and watching the first two seasons of arrow again you can go back and listen to woo and michael's discussions on any of those episodes and all the new arrow episodes will be along with gotham the flash and Constantine in the new revamped DC Nation podcast, which will be Dan and I talking all things DC. It's going to be awesome. And that will still be available on the regular KTA feed, as well as its own feed on iTunes, just so you're not confused. Yep. And you can also contact our podcast through email, got across the airways at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, got across airwaves. There's no on there. It's just across airwaves or Google+. Plus. Kaniko, how else can you cut? You can leave a voicemail at 773-809-3363. Give us thoughts, feedback, or a review of any of the shows we aren't currently reviewing, or tell us what you want us to review. You can do all of that by calling 773-809-3363 and leaving a voicemail. And how can you listen to our show if you don't know so already? You can listen to our show through Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and the Mix Radio Network, thanks to our good friend Jack Stifle. And you can also listen to our episodes by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. So once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy, Andy Babak, Wu Kim, and Michael J. Petty, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Resnick. Until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. See you guys. Have a great week. And I hope Castle's episode inspired you to want to be a cowboy. Kids See you guys. I'm the real McCoy, and I'm headed out west, sucker, because I want to be a cowboy, baby. With a top left back and the sunshine shining. Cowboy, Riding at night
we now return to our regularly scheduled program.